Now, if you will turn to Mark, uh, chapter 15. To Mark, chapter 15, verse 22. We cannot go on with our study this evening further, as it were, in one sense, because I only got back yesterday afternoon not been able to give the time necessary uh, to it. But in doing the notes of our last time, a um, number of uh, uh, fresh thoughts uh, have come to me, and I have put them in those notes, and they are uh, quite a lot, really, in one way or another. And um, what I'm going to do this evening is to dwell a little more upon what happened on the cross and to, uh, I'm, I'm sure that we can never emphasize too much the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's really what we're going to do. Now from verse 22 of Mark 15. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted place of a skull. And they offered him wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And they crucify him, and part his garments among them, casting lots upon them what each should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. In like manner also the chief priests mocking him among themselves with the scribes said he saved others himself he cannot save let the Christ the king of Israel now come down from the cross that we may see and believe and they that were crucified with him reproached him and when the sixth hour was come there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said behold he calleth Elijah and one ran and filling a sponge full of vinegar put it on a reed and gave him to drink saying let be let us see whether Elijah cometh to take him down and Jesus uttered a loud voice and gave up the ghost and the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom and when the centurion who stood by over against him saw that he so gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, 
this man was the Son of God. <clears throat> Well, now there are <coughs> two verses I would like to read again in Mark 15, verses 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. Three things, the cry, the death, and the veil. You turn to Matthew chapter 27, <clears throat> verses 50 and 51. <clears throat> Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks were rent. Luke 23. Forty-five and forty-six. We will read in the middle of verse 45, And the veil of the temple was rent in the midst, and Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he gave up the ghost. John 19 and verse 30. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, now, this evening, I want to dwell on this central point of the central, or the center, of the whole Bible. These three things, the cry, which John tells us, was, it is finished. The death, and the veil, rent in two, from the top, to the bottom. Of course we shall say some of the things we have already said in our previous study, uh, but I don't think that that matters too much, especially if it comes to us with fresh life, and we're trusting the Lord for that. So the first thing I just want to say in the way of background is that for Christ this was supreme sacrifice. It was the final 
and absolute laying down of his life for us at measureless cost. Six hours from 9 a.m. in the morning till 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Six hours for which he was born. Six hours upon which depends. Six hours during which he was made sin for us and was cut off out of the land of the living. Six hours in which he not only finally tasted physical death but six hours in which he tasted all that that terrible word signifies in the Bible, death. You turn with me to a number of scriptures in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Him who knew no sin, he, that is God, made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, think of those words. Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin on our behalf. A more modern version puts it simply like this. He who knew no sin, God made our sin that we might become God's righteousness in him. Tremendous words, simply tremendous words. Tremendous at least in the sense that we are made the righteousness of God in him. Fearful words. Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin. There is mystery in those words. Mystery that no theologian will ever unravel. No mind, however renewed by the Spirit of God, will ever be able to fully comprehend the fathomless mystery uh, that is in that word. He made to be sin for us. In Isaiah 53, and verse 8, we read this word. He, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who among them considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due. Cut off out 
of the land of the living. Uh, turn <coughs> to the New Testament, <coughs> Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Here we have again words that I believe contain fathomless mystery. But we behold him who hath been made a little lower than the angels, even Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he should taste of death for every man. He should taste of death for every man. Now, I do not just believe that this means physical death. Something happened on the cross which will be forever beyond our comprehension or our understanding. Jesus not only finally physically tasted death, but spiritually he tasted that realm of death in which we all live, in which we're all born, this living death in which we exist outside of Christ. We remember the scripture, Romans 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. It's not just physical death. Or again, I think of Ephesians 2, 1, ye were dead in your trespasses and sins. Or I think again of Hebrews chapter 2, um, this same chapter again, and verse 14, since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood, he also, that is Christ, in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is the devil and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus tasted death for every man. He took upon himself all wickedness and all impurity. Upon him the Lord laid the iniquity of us all. It is a very interesting Hebrew word that is used in Isaiah 53 and verse 6 where it says, And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Cause to collect or cause to gather to or cause to meet upon as if God is with some invisible magnet drew the iniquity and sin of the whole of human history to the person of his son. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus took all our transgression and all our sin upon himself. Our unholiness became his. And in so doing, he became a curse. 
Now, I sometimes wonder whether we in the Western world have any idea of the horror in the East of a curse, <coughs> of just what it means for a place to be cursed, for a family to be cursed, for a home to be cursed. Jesus became a curse for us. In Galatians 3, and verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that upon the Gentiles might come the blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, again, just think of these words, so well known to Christian people. Uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. He became a curse for us. Our sin alienated him from God. It shut him out from the presence of God. Divine holiness, divine righteousness, excommunicated, as it were, the Lord Jesus Christ in that moment when he was made sin for us, when he became a curse. He was abandoned by God, forsaken of his Father. We are, of course, as I've said again and again in our studies, face to face with this central mystery. For we cannot fully understand exactly what did happen on the cross. Only the results and the consequences we know. Those strange words again in Isaiah. It pleased God to crush him. He hath put him to grief. Isaiah 53, verse 10. We shall never understand just what happened. But so immense the suffering, so terrible its quality, so measureless its cost, so fathomless the pain, that even the natural creation itself was affected. In verse 33, we read uh, that the natural light faded. It was no eclipse, as some people tried to tell us, because it was at the Passover 
and the <coughs> Passover is the time of the full moon. So there was no uh, eclipse. For, furthermore, it lasted three hours. It was something, something happened, as it were, that the laws of the natural creation of the universe were, for a moment or two, touched by what happened on the cross. As I said the last time, I don't wish to appear either irreverent or blasphemous, but it seems to me that some anguished convulsion took place within the Godhead. People sometimes try to tell us that God that Jesus suffered as a man, but that as God, he suffered not at all. But I'm not sure that you can make this dichotomy so clearly in the person of the Lord Jesus to put on one side his manhood and on the other side his Godhead, his deity. It says in Colossians 1 verse 17 that in him all things hold together. And when Jesus was made sin for us, when he became a curse, when it pleased God to bruise him, to put him to grief. In that moment, it was as if unbearable pain seized the very being of God himself. And the consequences were that the natural creation was touched. The light faded into darkness. That, apart from any of the other things that transpired in these six hours, must surely bring us face to face with the reality of the suffering, the depth of the suffering, the mystery of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Out of that impenetrable darkness and pain, we hear ringing down through the centuries of time that awesome cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was no play acting on the part of Christ, no mouthing of scripture so that it may just be technically fulfilled. Jesus didn't act anything on the cross. It was that terrible moment when he was alienated from the Father, when he was abandoned for the only time in his being by God the Father, when in that moment he became a curse for us and God struck him. Christ had been made sin for us. No angel appeared then to strengthen him as in Gethsemane. No great choir stood there to sing glory to God in the highest. That was Satan's hour. The hour of the power of darkness. Jesus himself had said it. A vast universe of sin, of pain, of unhappiness, of suffering, of death, had been condensed 
into his experience. The Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all, and he bore it into oblivion. Right away into nothingness, he took our sin and our iniquity. When Christ died with that great cry, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Christ never uttered a more powerful or a more pregnant message than that one word, finished. Nor was there ever a greater miracle performed than that which resulted in the veil of the temple being torn in two. Nor was there ever more effective power exercised than when Christ finished the work of our salvation and reconciled us to God. They speak of the splitting of the atom, but it was Christ who reconciled a fallen humanity to a holy God. He had opened the way into the very presence of God for redeemed sinners. In that one great dying cry of Christ, we find our eternal security. The everlasting rock upon which our salvation is founded. So it is all the more necessary for us to ask ourselves what it was that was finished. Whatever it was that was accomplished on the cross, it had an immediate effect on the symbolic heart of the old economy, the old covenant. In the temple, in the sanctuary itself, the veil which guarded the holiest place of all was torn into. Now just what did that signify? All three of the synoptic gospel writers, that is Matthew, Mark and Luke, make a point of the fact that the veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. It's an interesting little point they make. It wasn't torn humanly from the bottom, from, as you would think, from down below up. It was torn far above uh, the possibility of the men getting without ladders or some kind of means, and was torn from the top to the bottom. From heaven to earth, it was torn. What really does it signify? Well, there are a number of scriptures I'd like you to look at. Um, there is Daniel 9, verse 24. In our last study, we dwelt very much on that, but I'd like to add some more to it more scriptures to it. Daniel 9 verse 24, speaking of the Messiah, 70 weeks, they are symbolical, of course, as 490 years, are decreed upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, 
and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Then, if you will turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse <coughs> 11. Well, actually, I think we will read, first of all, verse uh, uh, 3, and then verse 7 and 8. Verse 3. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, Verse 7. But into the second, the high priest alone, once in the year, not without blood, which he offereth for himself and for the errors of the people, the Holy Spirit, this signifying, that the way into the holy place hath not yet been made manifest, while the first tabernacle is yet standing. Verse 11. But Christ, having come a high priest of the good things to come, through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, nor yet through the blood of goats and cows, but through his own blood, entered in once for all into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish unto God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 26. Or oh, we we'll read verse 24. For Christ entered not into a holy place made with hands like in pattern to the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the face of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Else must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, hath he been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Chapter 10. Verse 1 to 4. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect them that draw nigh. Else would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a, there is a remembrance made of sins year by year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Uh, verse 10. By which will? We, that is the will of God, the will of Christ, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest indeed standeth day by day ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, the which can never take away sins. But he, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, 
henceforth expecting till his enemies be made the footstool of his feet. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and having our body washed with pure water. Now then, quite a few scriptures, but what does all that really mean? Well, it simply means this, that all the messianic prophecy and typology, the shadows and figures of the Old Testament had been fulfilled. Christ had brought the Old Testament to its completion, to its climax in himself, in his work. The law had not only been fulfilled in his life, but in his death. He had finished the work of our redemption, to which the whole Old Testament pointed. And the veil, which so effectively barred the way into the presence of God, which was the age-long reminder that the blood of bulls and of goats could never take away sin, was therefore torn in two. Christ had made an end of our sins. Now, when God's word says he has made an end of our sins, it means precisely what it says. Precisely what it says. God does not lie and God does not exaggerate. He finished transgression. He made an end of sin to make reconciliation, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Our transgression, our iniquity had been atoned for, eradicated, eliminated, cancelled out, finished forever. In one sacrifice for all time, Christ had borne away our sin. In himself, he had finished our transgression. He had put an end to our sin. So effective is that work which he accomplished on Calvary that God can no longer find our sin. And if that seems too far-fetched a statement, I'll read a whole number of scriptures to you. So tremendous is that which Jesus did that God himself says, I cannot find their sin. It's blotted out. Or as we would say today, eradicated. It's gone. It has been blotted out, it's been removed as far as the east is from the west, ad infinitum. The very record 
of our sins has been destroyed. Now this is the thing which troubles so many Christians. No wonder psychologists are in business with neurotic evangelicals. Because, because having believed on the one hand uh, that they've been saved by the grace of God, they still believe that though God has forgiven them, the record is there. And then now and again, if God wishes to, he can turn up the sort of records and say, well, no, of course, I've forgiven this, but there is this record here, here, and here, and here, and here, they're doing the same thing again. Rather like our legal system, which once we've blotted the copybook, makes a record of the blot forever after. And if you ever have the misfortune to appear again in court, as some of you well know, then the probation officer, the probation officer will then read out your former trespasses. Even though you paid for them. You may have been in prison for six years, but still when you next sin, you will have the six-year sentence read out, the crime and the sentence. Not so with God. So effective, this blotting out of our sin, this bearing away into oblivion of our sin, that the very record of our sins has been destroyed as if it never existed. And you can search throughout the whole of the kingdom of heaven. You will not find a single record of a believer's sin. Jesus took it. And destroyed it. No wonder Martin Luther turned the world upside down. With justification. It's well worth turning the world upside down over. The very record. Of our sin. Of our iniquity. Of our transgression. Has been destroyed. To be remembered no more. By God. Now take your Bible and let's see if this is so. Isaiah 44 and verse 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. I have blotted out. God doesn't just, as it were, cause a mist to come over. He blots the whole thing out so that it is no more. Psalm 103, verse 12. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Oblivion. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 and verse 34. Listen to this. This verse, by the way, is quoted again and again in the New Testament. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin will I remember no more. In this matter, God has a forgetful memory. The whole thing has been blotted out of his memory. 
<coughs> Isaiah 43, verse 25. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and I will not remember thy sins. What a blessed word for those who sometimes can be tortured not by the Spirit of God, but by the enemy himself with that sinful past. I have blotted out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and I will not remember thy sins. If God says he will not remember our sins, God will not remember them. He will never be guilty of faithlessness in this matter. He has said it, and he will stick by it to the very end. Again, Romans 8, 33 and 34, so well-known verses, but no wonder the apostle bursts into this great paean of praise. He says in verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ Jesus that died, yea, rather, that was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. You see, the whole argument of the Apostle Paul is that God cannot lay any charge to his elect for the simple reason that he's blotted out the records. The whole thing has been destroyed. Jesus himself has borne it into oblivion. It's eradicated, cancelled, out, eliminated. Not your sin, not your sin in part, but the whole is nailed to his cross and you bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. That's the old hymn. Not in part. Some Christians seem to think, if I may put it almost irreverently, that God spends his time nailing fresh sins to the cross. That he sort of sweeps up a few more every day from his people. But not so. Your sin not in part, but the whole. Furthermore, Christ had finished the positive work of our salvation, all that was required to save us, to deliver us, uh, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to justify us, to reconcile us, he had done. He had finished the work of reconciliation. He had brought in everlasting righteousness. So powerful is the work of justification that for the redeemed, scarlet sin has become snow-white purity. He has not only cancelled out our sin by being made sin for us, he has given us his own righteousness. Fallen sinners, think of it, let it sink into you. Fallen sinners 
have been made in Christ the righteousness of God. I can't believe it, but it's true. I, and this surely must make you marvel, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. For listen to the scripture, him who knew no sin, God made to be sin in our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not just the vindication of God, but so bound to God, so reconciled to God, so one with God, so partakers of the divine nature that we become the righteousness of God in him. Christ's positive holiness is theirs. God sees them forever in his Son. It is a wonderful thing, dear child of God, that once you've been saved, God never sees you outside of his Son. Always he sees you in his Son. So strong is this that the Apostle Paul comes up with the obvious question, shall we continue in sin then, that grace may abound? And argues against such a possibility with the sanctifying grace of God. But that's another matter. Christ's sinlessness has become theirs. And so also his positive righteousness and holiness. You see, some people believe that the, the sinlessness of Christ, in one sense, has been imputed to them. But they cannot see that Christ's positive holiness has been imputed to them. Let me put it this way. In God's sight, it is not only just as if they had never sinned. It is also just as if they had done every single thing required of them. Think of that. Think of that. That's why the Apostle Paul argues for not sinning. Not to win merit with God. But he says, once you see this, can you sin? Such is the garment of our salvation. Then again, so effectual is the work of reconciliation that we are spoken of as members of Christ partakers of the divine nature. 1 Corinthians 6.15 Know ye not that ye are members of Christ? Or again 1 Corinthians 12.27 Ye are members of his body. Or again 2 Peter 1.4 That through these 
ye might become partakers of the divine nature through the exceeding great and precious promises of God. Every single thing necessary for us to be born of God, to be fathered by God, to enter into an eternal union with God, Jesus had completed on the cross. He had accomplished all that was needed that we might be indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is never to be seen as something detached from Calvary. It resulted from the finished work of Christ. In one sense, Pentecost is an extension of Calvary. It is the logical outcome of Christ's work on the cross. Both the historical happening and our individual or corporate experience of the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit are based on Calvary. God neither gives us the Holy Spirit nor fills us with the Holy Spirit nor empowers or anoints us with the Holy Spirit, nor manifests in us the gifts of the Holy Spirit on the basis of our devotion or prayerfulness or goodness, so-called, or any work of the flesh or of the law, but on the basis of Christ's finished and complete work alone. This explains why some people seek and seek and seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit and never come to it. Because they believe that if they are more devoted they will win the fullness of the Holy Spirit. If they're more prayerful, they, they can't understand how so-and-so who's rotten to the core, uh, but a believer, enters in so easily. I've heard it again and again. People come to me with this problem. Oh, they say, I can't understand it. So-and-so. I don't think they pray a lot and they're quite ignorant and yet they've entered in and here am I seeking and seeking and seeking. But unwittingly we have made the works of the law, the works of the flesh, the basis for being filled with the Holy Spirit. As if having been saved by the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, then through our own devotion, our own prayerfulness, our own zeal, we can be filled, we can win the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Never, never, never! If God could fill us on the basis of our devotion, he could, we could have been saved on the basis of our devotion. God has saved us on the basis of Jesus Christ's work alone. And the whole Bible rings with the emphatic truth of it. And it is just the same with Pentecost. I can know the fullness of the Holy Spirit because Jesus has done every single thing necessary for me to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not to discount or devalue devotion or prayerfulness or zeal or scriptural knowledge or walking faithfully, conscientiously, day by day with God, but those things can never win God's favor. They are the consequences of grace 
Read the scripture. John 16. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come to you. The comforter coming to us is wholly dependent upon Jesus going to the cross and ascending to the right hand of God the Father. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Being therefore by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, it poured forth this which ye see and hear. Note very carefully, Christ has received the promise of the Holy Spirit for us. He has received the promise of the Holy Spirit for us. God has given them the promised Holy Spirit to the righteousness of Christ. Do you get it? To the righteousness of Christ. God has given the promised Holy Spirit and everything to do with the Holy Spirit. Every aspect of his work, nothing is excluded. Turn to Galatians 3, uh, if that's not enough. Galatians 3 and verse um, uh, 2. <coughs> Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul. There's only what I learn from you. Receive ye the, the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now perfected in the flesh? Did ye suffer so many things in vain, if it be indeed in vain? Now listen. He therefore that supplieth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith. It explains sometimes why some people can work a miracle whose life don't always stand up to too much inspection. It's because they've got hold of one simple truth. That it is dependent on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In that finished work, Christ has laid a foundation for our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. He has provided a basis upon which God can give us all things freely. He has provided a solid and indestructible basis for our eternal security and safety but there's more to it than even that an old world an old creation an old order an old system an old man had been finished in Christ he had terminated in his death and in his burial the old Adam the first man and everything and everyone related to that first man. Oh, there's so much in the way of scripture here, and we really haven't the time anymore. But if you look at Romans 5, and from verse 12, 
on, you will see that the whole argument of the Apostle is, as in Adam, so in Christ. And he develops it even more in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, um, even more so. Uh, and, uh, oh, there are so many other scriptures that one could speak of. Romans 6, verses 3 to 11, where we're told that our old man has been crucified with, with Christ. And, of course, baptism really it signifies this wonderful truth. Not just and only that I have been justified. Not just and only that I have been uh, made one, reconciled to God. But the waters of baptism speak of two worlds. An old man and a new man. An old creation and a new creation. And the cross. And Jesus, in his death, brought to an end an old creation. And in his burial, it was put forever out of sight. And in his resurrection, there is a new man. Now we who have been saved by the grace of God, we are in this wonderful period, which is so really thrilling in many ways, where we are in the new man and yet we do not see it all yet visibly uh, expressed. But as sure as I stand here, the Lord Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, that new man, that new order, that new kingdom, that new heaven and that new earth will come in concrete fashion. Out of his death and in his resurrection, Jesus brought to birth a new man, a new creation, a new order. And he did more than that in his finished work. He also brought to an end the power of Satan and the whole hierarchy of evil. Through his cross, Satan was cast out and they were despoiled. Now this explains some rather remarkable scriptures that we find, which seem to speak in the past tense when somehow or other we feel well, the enemy is not really cast out. For instance, John 12 and verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Chapter 16, verse 11. Of judgment, because the prince of this world hath been judged. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15. We've already read that earlier this evening, but we'll just refresh our memory with it. that through death he might bring to naught him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver all them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Or Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15. Wonderful verses. Having blotted out the hand, uh, the bond written in ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he hath taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, 
having despoiled the principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in his cross. There are many other scriptures too that we could uh, uh, look to. I think of 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the Son of God was manifested. To this end was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So when Jesus cried, it is finished, he had severed every link, every fetter he had broken, which binds fallen man to Satan. All that was necessary for full and practical <coughs> freedom, he had done. He had accomplished. Now, if many of us were to get hold of that, we would be free before this meeting finished. I suppose half the troubles we find amongst Christians is bondage. Terrible bondages. Inhibitions, fears, complexes, all kinds of things, all of which belong to an old world. They belong to an old man, an old nature, an old creation. And all we sometimes think, if I was more devoted, I would be freed from these things. If I were to go out as a missionary to the ends of the earth, I should be freed of these things. Yes, you would be freed of certain things, but believe me, those of us who know some missionaries know that you can take your inhibitions with you. It's not our devotion which frees us from bondage. It is not our prayerfulness even, which delivers us from fear. It is the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we see that, it doesn't matter what kind of complex we've got, it, the death knell has been struck. It's finished. Then is born into our hearts living faith. To believe that even I can step out of this fear. Even I. Not because I am devoted. Not because I'm a great Christian. Not because I'm a David Livingstone or a Watchman Nee or a Martin Luther. Or an Amy Carmichael. <laughs> For the ladies. <laughs> but simply because I am in Christ. Simply because the grace of God has reached me. Simply because the mercy and love of God has won me. Because of that, I can step out of any bondage. People often come to uh, servants of the Lord in some way hoping that they are going to work some kind of magic which is going to free them. I have seen people come not just to me, but to others, and I've seen some people instantly freed because their eyes were on the work of Jesus Christ. And I've seen other people come and go as bound as they came because they thought, like Simon the sorcerer, though not always for such evil motives, that Peter had got the power, some magic power in himself. But Peter never had any magic power in himself. Nor did Paul, nor did any one of the others. The power has always been totally reserved 
to the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. And any servant of the Lord who can be used in any way is only representing the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, dear child of God, you can go out of this place freed of every complex and the inhibition that you've known because the word of God says so, that's why. Because it says of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then it goes on to say what he can do. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Bring them out of their dungeons, out of their prison houses. Give them a garland for ashes, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, all given purely and only because of what Jesus has done. It's even more than that. You see, the, the very ground and power of Satan has been nullified by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's cut the whole ground from under his feet. And we are here as the church of God to pro simply proclaim that fact, not as some drab, colorless, dark, heavy lot of religious people, but as those who have become, as it were, the embodiment of the living power and presence and love of God. We're here as a testimony. That's why we're not. the devil doesn't like real Christians. Because we're here as a testimony in this world, in touch with the world, living contemporary lives, in touch with all the sorrow and unhappiness of the world. But we're here to proclaim the simple fact that in the cross of Jesus Christ, in Christ crucified, a whole old world order has come to an end and we're only waiting for the word of God to be spoken and it will be visibly manifested to the ends of the earth and then the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and then shall all flesh see the glory of the Lord for the arm of the Lord shall be revealed it's a wonderful thing that Jesus has done he has accomplished all that was necessary to realize the eternal purpose of God, to produce the city of God, to form and to prepare the bride for Christ, to not only open the kingdom of God to redeemed sinners, but finally to bring that kingdom with great glory and power. Six awesome hours in which Christ finished the work. Will we ever understand it? Not when we've got Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Moses and David, Isaiah and Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Paul, John and James, Peter, Martin Luther, John and Charles Wesley, Watchman Lee, and a host of others putting their heads all together for all eternity will never come to a full understanding of what happened. All we know is this. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top 
to bottom. The thing that barred the very presence of God to fallen man was removed. The barrier between the kingdom of God and sinful man had been taken away. How wonderful then it is. No wonder that Matthew, Mark and Luke all make the point that the veil of the temple <coughs> was torn into. And the writer to the Hebrews puts it like this. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest place of all by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us, even his flesh, through the veil which is his flesh. Let us draw near with full assurance of faith, having our hearts, our consciences sprinkled with precious blood. Well, I hope you've got something out of that this evening. If you haven't, I shall give up. <laughs> it seems to me that there's something so exhaustless, so fathomless in the work of Christ and all the danger that we as children of God uh, depart from what we consider to be kindergarten teaching. I am coming to see that justification is the basis upon which our sanctification and our glorification are solidly based. May God give to you such a vision. And if I put it poorly, read Martin Luther's preface to Galatians. Maybe that will do something <laughs> if the Spirit of God gives revelation. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we commit ourselves to Thee. We thank Thee, Lord, for that finished work of Thine. And we thank Thee, Lord, that there is sufficient power in that work sufficient power, Lord, not only just to forgive and to cleanse us, to justify us, to reconcile us, but to conform us to the image of thy dear Son, to bring us to that place where we have become the habitation, thy habitation in the Spirit. O oh, Father, Grant every one of us that spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of thyself. Open our eyes to see. It is not what I am, but what thou art. That, that alone can be my soul's truest. Lord, may it dawn upon us in such a way that some of us who are perhaps not even saved may enter into our salvation. 
And some of us, Lord, who are saved but know nothing of the fullness and power of thy Holy Spirit may be filled and empowered. And others of us, Lord, who need to know the way of the cross may have our eyes open to see that we've been crucified with Christ and that he is our life. that we might all have our eyes open to see that Satan's power over us as thy people is forever broken. We are the freed people of God. Lord, may this be so. May our eyes be open. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.